Domain-driven design is an approach to modeling software focused on a domain or a logical area that defines a problem that you're trying to solve. Originally popularized in the early 2000s by Eric Evans, DDD's focus on making software a reflection of the domain it works with has found a resurgence in the isolation and decoupled nature, or at least the promise of it, with microservices. Wardley Maps is a strategic way of visualizing a value chain of business capabilities in a grid characterized by a spectrum towards commodity on one axis and most commonly something like visibility on another axis. It helps you understand and make important strategic decisions, such as like a build versus buy decision. Finally, team topologies is an approach to organizing business and technology teams for fast flow. It's a practical kind of step-by-step adaptive model for organizational team design interaction. When combined, domain-driven design, worldly maps, and team topologies provides a powerful suite of tools to help you think about a modern software architecture. My name is Wes Rice. I'm a principal technologist with ThoughtWorks and co-host of the InfoQ podcast. Additionally, I chair the QCon San Francisco Software Conference happening in October and November this year. Today on the InfoQ podcast, we're talking to Susanna Kaiser. Susanna is an independent tech consultant, software architect, and an ex-startup CTO who has recently been connecting the dots between domain-driven design, worldly maps, and team topologies. She recently gave a fantastic talk at QCon London, diving into the intersection of the three. So on today's show, we'd like to continue the conversation talking about domain-driven design, worldly maps, and team topologies. We'll first cap, recap three, and then we'll dive into some of the success stories and some of the understanding that Susanna has when she's talking to folks about her consulting work. As always, thank you for joining us on your jogs, walks, and commutes. Susanna, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. We talked about domain-driven design, worldly maps, and team topology in the introduction. At least I did like a high-level overview. Anything you want to add to the overview that I kind of gave? No, it was a great overview. So I like to hear, to listen to stories that other bring into the table. And because whenever I make the introduction, that it's like, oh yeah, it's so, I don't know, either going too far into details and then the podcast hosts, they then tend to bring very great summaries. So nothing to add. Great introduction. <laughs> great. There's so many things that are in software. What made you decide to bring these three things together to kind of a story? Yes, so for me, the combination of Wattler mapping, domain-driven design, and team topologies evolved naturally over time, but it was at its core driven by system thinking. So Dr. Russell Eckhoff, one of the pioneers of the system thinking movement, he stated that a system is more than the sum of its parts, it's a product of their interaction. So the way parts fit together, that determines the performance of the system, not on how they perform taken separately. So when we are building systems in general, we are faced with the challenges of building the right thing and building the thing right, right? And building the right thing addresses effectiveness and addresses questions such as how aligned is our solution to the users and business needs? Are we creating value for our customers? Have we understood the problem? And do we share a common understanding? And building the thing right focuses on efficiencies, for example, efficiency of engineering practices. And it's not only crucial to generate value, but also being able to deliver that value. And, and how fast can we deliver changes? And how fast and easy can we make a change effective and adapt to new circumstances? So the one does not go without the other, but as Dr. Russell Eckhoff pointed out, doing the wrong thing right is not nearly as good as doing the right thing wrong. So by considering the whole and having effectiveness and efficiency in mind to build the right thing right, 
that we need a kind of like holistic perspective to build adaptive systems. And one approach out of many is combining these three perspectives of a business strategy with water mapping, software architecture and design with domain-driven design, and team organization with team topologies. So in order to build and design and evolve adaptive socio-technical systems that are optimized for a fast flow of change. Yeah, absolutely. That really resonates with me, building the right thing and then building the thing right. Those two phrases really resonate with me as a trade-off and understanding what you're doing and how you're thinking about these problems. So where do you start? You have these three things and you start with like domain-driven design. Where do you start when you kind of apply these three techniques? So it depends on your context. You can start each of the perspectives. What I like to start with is first analyzing the team situation regards to their team cognitive load and their delivery bottlenecks that they are currently facing. So what kind of problems do they have right now? Are they dealing with high team cognitive load because they have to deal with a big ball of mud when you deal with a legacy system which evolved over the time? Are they organized as functional silo teams where handover is involved? Are, there, are these large teams or do the teams need to communicate and coordinate with each other when they want to implement and deliver changes? So these are kind of questions that I like to address first, like analyzing the current situation of your teams. And then the next step is... Let me, let me ask a question before you go there. Let's talk about cognitive load for a second. How do you get people to understand the cognitive load that they're under? Like oh, a lot of teams have been operating in a certain way for so long, they don't even realize that their cognitive load is so high that they don't know of any other way. They don't know how to adapt to that. How do you have that conversation and get people to understand that the cognitive load that they're kind of seeing is actually a detriment to flow? Yeah, so there are different aspects that I like to bring into the conversation, for example. So how much time does it need for them to understand a piece of code? How long does it take to onboard new team members? How long does it take to make a change effective and to implement changes? And kind of like also comes to software quality in terms terms of like testing as well. Are there side effects involved that they could not be easily anticipated? And then also bring it back to a water map itself. So what kind of components they are responsible for? And if we have our water map with the value chain mapped to the y-axis and we have your users, your user needs and components that fulfill the user needs directly or facilitating other components in the value chain and then the evolutions axis going from left to right from uh, genesis custom build product and rental and commodity and the more you're on the spectrum of a left spectrum of your water map then you are dealing with high uncertainty then also unclear paths to action and the components that are located on the right spectrum of your water map there you are dealing with mature stable components where you have a more clear path to action and And if your teams are responsible for components that are located on the left spectrum of your water map, then there's a potential high cognitive load involved because you need to experiment more, explore more, discover more, and applying then merchant and novel practices instead of best and good practices on the right path. Yeah, that really resonated for me in particular, being able to visualize a value chain onto a worldly map and then be able to say things on the left, things that are more towards Genesis require more cognitive load to keep in your mind. Things that are more towards that commodity side, right side, are definitely less. That really resonated to me when you said that. So I interrupted you. You said step two. Okay, so that step one, kind of playing some things out. What about step two? It doesn't need to necessarily be step two, but one of the steps could be creating a water map of your current situation. 
and to look at what is your current landscape you're operating in. What are your users? What are the users' needs? What are the components that fulfill these user needs? And then also to identify the streams of changes in order to optimize for fast flow of change that requires to know where the most important changes in your system occur, the streams of changes. And there could be different types of stream of changes. And with a water map, this visualizes activity-oriented streams of changes reflected or represented by the user needs. So if we look at the user needs, these are then the potential stream of changes that we need to focus on when we want to optimize for fast flow of change. So that is then first identifying then the stream of changes, the user needs, as could be then the next step and using this water map as a foundation for future discussions, how to evolve then our system. And then we can also go from there to address the problem domain next. And that's where we are then blending in domain-driven design. And the users and the user needs of a Wardley map, they are usually representing the anchor of your map, but also constitute the problem domain in regards to domain-driven design. And you can then analyze your problem domain and try to distill your problem domain into smaller parts, the subdomains. And different subdomains have different value to the business. So some are more important to the business than others. So we have different types of subdomains, such as core, supporting, and generic. And we can try to identify what are the subdomains that are core, which provides competitive advantage, which tend to change often, which tend to be quite complex, and where we should focus on building these parts of our system in-house, because that's the one that we would like to differentiate ourselves. So that requires the most strategic investment. So this gives us, combined on a Wadley map, the core domain-related aspects then are then located in Genesis or custom build and needs to be built in-house. Then supporting and generic, that's then where we go to the right spectrum of the Wadley map, either buying off-the-shelf products or using open-source software for supporting, for example, and then generic, that is something where we can also use goes in product and rental or then commodity and utility where we have can then outsource to, for example, cloud hosted services. You used some examples as we've talked. Let's try to put this like into like a journey, like a little example that kind of walks through it. And then as we go through it, I want to ask some questions, things that are about team size, particularly smaller team sizes. When you have a lot of people and large engineering teams, like QCon London had a talk in my track with Twitter that just in the GraphQL API side, they have an enabling team that has 25 engineers just to support the GraphQL side. So they have a huge team just in one particular area of their API surface. But in smaller organizations, you may not have that kind of depth of talent to be able to pull from. So as we kind of walk through this, I want to ask, kind of drawing on some of that experience you had as a CTO startup, how do you deal with different sizes when you don't necessarily have like huge teams to be able to handle different areas within the platform? So you used an example, I think, in your talk. You want to use that as an example? Let's try to apply this to something. Does an example come to mind? In my talk, I was addressing a fictitious example of an online school for junior students, which was at that state a monolithic big ball of mud, which was run and supported by functional silo teams and running on top of on-premises infrastructure components. Okay. So do you just take this big ball of mud and put it right in the middle of a wordly map? How do you start to tease apart this big ball of mud? 
So I start to map the current state of the online school. This monolithic big ball of mud is, for example, so I start with the users needs first, right? So the users could be the teachers and the junior students with their user needs of creating course content or evaluating student progress, or the students would like to study courses and requesting and receiving help and also receiving evaluation feedback. So a full slice, but basically a full slice of what the user is trying to accomplish exactly what needs do they have and what is necessary to fulfill this user need. And then I start with what is necessary to fulfill the user need directly. So that's at the top of the value chain of the y-axis of our Wadley map. And when I reflect, when I derive the value chain of the current state where we have a monolith right now, I start with one component, even knowing that it's too large because that's something that we would like to decompose later on. But at first, I would like to bring this big ball of mud as one component and then bringing in then the second perspective of domain-driven design where we split it, decompose it into modular components where we then solution space of strategic design and where we decompose it into modular the bounded context. That was my first question is about sizing. Like, how do you pick the right size? I mean, when you put this big ball of mud in there, it's going to be too big, right? So you put that big ball of mud in there and then you move into kind of the domains and start to break out the bounded context between that big ball of mud. So that way you can focus on each individual pieces within it. The water map this is kind of like a continuous improvement, right? So you have a continuous conversation about it. So is the, the water map that they have once created will change over the time. So and you can also say, okay, we know that this is a big ball of mud and it's a too large component. You can define it as your scope. Usually when you create a water map, you also define the scope of your water map, what is included, what is excluded, for example. And you can also say, at this point, we are putting in the monolith as one component. We are going to decompose it in a different water map. Or we we just replace it. So if there's one heuristic is if one component is too large to be handled by a small cross-functional team, that is an indicator that your component is too large. So if we have this monolithic online school component as one component, it's an indicator that it's too large. So we need to address it then coming to after we know what is our problem domain, what kind of problems we would like to solve, the user needs, we need to then identify like where we do high level design decisions and moving to the solution space of strategic design and decompose our big ball of mud into modular components. And there we can blend in other techniques from domain driven design, such as event storming, domain storytelling, user story mapping, example mapping, and so on to have a conversation about what is behavior that shall sit together, where we have a boundary around a domain model, the domain model reflecting business rules of a specific area of your system, and where bounded context forms a boundary and could also be then later on be suitable team boundaries when we come to team topologies, where we blend in the next perspective, making team decisions then. How does it change when maybe you're just focused on like an API, building an API, and you don't have control of, say, the front end or something along those lines? Does it change? Do you think about it any different when there's like this team abstraction that handles the UI and then you're kind of only working at the API surface and below? How do you think about that kind of problem? In an ideal situation, there's end-to-end responsibility for the streamlined teams, including the user interface, including the front-end, because what we would like to avoid is handover. And when we have front-end teams and back-end teams, there's definitely a handover involved when we want to make a change effective that is then distributed to the client that the client can use through the user interface. So team topologies aims to establish cross-functional teams. And that means also that the streamline teams, they need to have at least that much of skills for creating user interface and also having user experience 
UX focus as well involved. And they could get support by enabling teams, helping them to, for example, they could provide yeah, a style guide that can help the streamlined teams to not to reinvent the UI wheel every time they introduce a new dialogue in their user interface. So there are some standards that enabling teams can provide, for example, and help them also to acquire missing capabilities in that regard. But they are only there not to permanently be available, but instead every other team type from team topologies try to make the streamlined team self-sufficient so that they can focus on their steady flow of feature deliveries, flow of changes autonomously, and then request some help in specific circumstances. Team Topologies talks about four different types of team structures that are created. There is a streamlined team, which is the main way that work is done. And as you said, it's cross-functional. It has all these different pieces to it. There's a platform team, there's enabling team, and then there's a complicated subprocess team. So how do, say, like a platform team, like particularly in a case of a smaller company, I keep coming back to the smaller size because when you've got lots of people, you've got lots of different ways that you can create this. But in a smaller organization, how do you leverage the streamlined teams with platform teams, for example, to be able to get started? Like you mentioned some of the best practices and things that you can start with. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that interaction and how some of these tools help you get started with this? So first of all, if you have a really small organization, you can still apply it, but you don't have to have a dedicated platform team from the very first beginning because maybe you only have two streamlined teams, right? But you can establish a temporary task force that can provide a synest viable platform. That's how Matthew Skelton and Manuel Paisch described it in their team topology book where you provide first this kind of platform that is big enough to fulfill the consumer's need and not become bigger than needed. And it could start with documentation, like how to provision your infrastructure in cloud ecosystem or how to use the serverless framework or how to use this and that. And with documentation, it can then also describe also standards and best practices. And later on, it can evolve into a digital platform with self-service services and APIs and tools that the streamlined team can then easily consume. But it does not necessarily have to be a full-blown digital platform from the very beginning, but just as big enough as it's necessary to fulfill the needs of the consumers. As you mentioned there, when you start off in that journey with platform teams, how do you walk the line between standard and standardization? Like you want to have high standards, but as I think you said before, you don't want a standardization to become like a bottleneck. How do you walk the line between those two things? At the moment when you make something mandatory to use, right, that is then where it becomes potentially a bottleneck. So it's always like addresses, does we do we introduce bottlenecks in our journey? Because we would like to enable the streamlined teams that they are able to focus on fast flow of changes, that they are able to produce a steady flow of feature deliveries. So if there's a moment where we are blocking them and, for example, where we say, you know, you're only allowed to use this technologies or that technologies, this is an indication that we might then introduce the next bottleneck that we try to avoid from the very first beginning. For example, one possibility is also when we look at establishing cloud centers of excellence, where we empower teams to innovate on cloud-hosted infrastructure. We don't want to block innovation by saying you're only allowed to use these technologies. Instead, we would like to spark that these streamlined teams can also learn that we don't want to hold them back. And I guess the moment where we are not enabling them and supporting them 
instead of telling them what to use, it's a challenge that we address. On the other hand, it's also like we already had this conversation when we had this DevOps movement, right? Where we have stability on the one side, where the operation teams were focusing on and want to keep your production system stable and want to have as minimum, as least changes to the system. But the development teams back then wanted to deliver a lot of changes. And so there was a kind of contradiction in between them and also kind of like different forces involved. And I guess we have to look at what enables the fast flow of change. I guess that's the most important focus that they both need to have in mind. I want to ask a question that often comes up when I've had conversations about this, and it's about like getting started. Like when a company, like you talked about, you can start off by talking to the team. You can find out what their friction points are. You talked about them maybe using wordly maps and then domain-driven design and some of the concepts and things, the techniques within domain-driven design to be able to dive deeper like you've been storming. So it's kind of like a way that you could use these concepts together to be able to be, get started. But let's dive into a specific team on how you get started. If there's a company that sees this and they know that they can re-architect this big ball of mud using these strategies that you've talked about and use kind of like the reverse Conway maneuver to be able to enable fast flow of change and all these wonderful things that you talk about, But how do you get started? Do you just like come in Monday morning and say, all right, we're breaking up into three teams. We've got a platform team. We've got two enabling teams and go. I mean, do you start with one team and gain some experience? One like Uber team, knowing full well that team, it's the team that's going to live, but not the people on the team. How do you talk to people about day one and day two and then day three when it comes to these strategies? First of all, make it transparent, make the change transparent and communicated along the organization because I guess the most fear that people have is about change, that they get laid off. So whenever there's a reorganization in place, because if we are transforming to team topologies, team types and their interaction modes, there will be reteaming involved. And first of all, like to make it transparent to the entire organization, What are the team types? What is the interaction mode? When does it make sense that teams are collaborating? When does it make sense to provide X as a service? That is very essential for a transformation. And also there, I would like also to bring in Heidi Helfen's brilliant book about dynamic reteaming. She also brings in that you can start with forming one team first on a site, for example, by isolating one team, for example, that you can start, for example, with a platform team first, where you form first your platform team on a site from members of the back end and the infrastructure team, and then put them on the site to discover and assess infrastructure options. For example, if you'd plan to, instead of like running your system on on-premises infrastructure, you would like to migrate to the cloud and have this isolated platform team as a first team working on the site, they don't have to follow the processes. They are there to discover and explore new cloud strategies, for example, and cloud options that are available and they're suitable for their first bounded context that they would like to extract. It can then form next the first streamlined teams collaborating closely together with the platform team that has been built from first and assessing potential cloud options for the bounded contact that the streamlined teams is responsible for. And who will be member of which teams is also another question, right? So Heidi Helfand described different levels, who decides who will be member of what team. It could be from the top down, from management. It could also be a self-selecting process as well, where you let your members of your current teams decide in what team they would like to become member of. 
And so there are different levels involved, like, and also that you can also calibrate when you form a team, when you reteam, you need to also to calibrate your team. So you can calibrate on different aspects, like how you would like to work together, what you like to do pair programming or mob programming, and what is your mission of your team, that you introduce new team members that they can onboard very easily. And so they have different team calibration sessions that help you to bring the journey forward towards team topologies, team types, but also, for example, if you focus on a cloud migration strategy as well. So there are different aspects there where you can gradually transform your existing team into and incrementally transform them into team topologies, team type, and also with the highest level of self-selection then letting the team members select themselves. There could also be a suggestion or like that the team members say, I would like to be into that team. And then the management can decide and getting this input from the teams and they decide. So there are different levels applicable for forming these teams. So I have one more question in this kind of space. What about a company that uses like contractors, like brings in contractors to deliver units into the value chain? How do you integrate that type of work when you don't have a streamlined team that has complete code ownership of everything that they're actually delivering? How do you deal with it? If you bring in contractors to the streamlined team, you mean? Yeah. So like you've got a streamlined team that owns an area of the business that's doing some kind of work, but they contract to bring different pieces in a mobile app that may expose some things or a capability that might be in a mobile app that maybe they don't have the like internal experience to develop themselves. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So it depends what part of the system they are integrated in. So one thing is that either through well-defined APIs of what they are going to provide. So what kind of like, is it existing server that they provide or not that they can easily consume or not? But also if they are just like temporary support, for example, I would suggest to have them involved where you share the knowledge from the very beginning, having them being part of your pair programming sessions or more programming sessions where you don't have a team that is building expertise and then leave later and then the knowledge is gone so that you incorporate them in your processes, having them involved in your knowledge sharing sessions as well so that they are becoming part of your team and they might rotate later on. Also, Team Topology says that you should aim for long-lived stable teams, but this does not mean that they need to be static. So team members can switch over the time, either freelancers or contractors from outside, but also Heidi Helfand also recommends to enable or to provide that team members can switch teams because that is one of the opportunities to retain your talents in-house, right? So for personal growth, you sometimes would like to switch teams. And if they can't grow within your organization, they will find growth opportunities outside of your organization. It's the team structure that's long lived, not the people on the team, right? Exactly. Yeah. We talked about cognitive load in the context of Wardley Maps. We talked about platform and streamlined teams. We talked about standard and standardization. We talked about domain-driven design and then diving deeper into some of the components once you've identified some areas that you want to break out. What do we miss? Sometimes I'm asked, so what kind of benefits brings a Wardley Map? And it's also that I like to highlight that, first of all, it helps you to visualize potential instabilities and associated risks. So, for example, if you have a value chain where you have volatile components, for example, bounded contexts of your core domain are volatile because they are changing a lot and they have embody quite high level of complexities because it's the one that provides competitive advantage. And so if you build these volatile components on top of mature and stable components, that is reflecting a stable system. 
But if you switch it around, if you have stable components that build up on volatile components, then it is a potential candidate for instabilities and associated risks because you have a stable component which is expected to be stable and it's built up on volatile components and all these introduces new changes and you have to keep the stable component up to date or you have to keep the stable component stable and that shifts your focus on handling the source of risks. Let's talk about that for a second. So when I hear you say that, what are the patterns? Is that a candidate for a complicated subprocess team then to be able encapsulate that instability and be able to elevate the constraint? Are there patterns to address that you've seen? First of all, it creates awareness. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe you would like to discover on new technologies and that new technology is still in genesis or custom build. First of all, it makes you aware that you are building stable components on top of volatile components. And that could be a potential problem. And then the other thing that I would like to bring in is are the efficiency gaps. Like, for example, if you are using internally a component in Genesis or custom build, but there is a component in the market that is more evolved and residing, for example, in commodity and utility, this gives you an indication, a hint that you could be less efficient in your organization because you are building on less efficient components that are then residing on the left part of your Wadley map. And this is an indication for you. I want to dive into that just a little bit more. Sometimes a component might be very unstable but it might be more towards commodity. Like you might have a bunch of network partitions or something on top of something. So I guess I'm curious when you talk about from genesis to commodity, it's not just genesis to commodity. It's like a whole spectrum of things to consider on that left to right, right? So how do you talk to people about understanding that, yeah, this might be a mature service, but because you have all these network partitions that are there, it actually is further left on the ordinary map. How do you talk to people about that? It's more about the characteristics and general properties of the components of your Wadley map. So also like it depends on like the market perception and the user perception and so on. So if you have cloud services, you expect it to be stable. And if there is a failure occurring, you are extremely surprised that this failure happens. But if you have a brand new product in the market, you expect failures or you can deal with it easier than with a very stable component, like, for example, power when you're coming out of the outlet. If there's no power available, you will definitely be surprised. But if you have a brand new product that you, I don't know, supporting or something like that, that you're kind of like expecting that there might be some phase. It doesn't have to be. So there are different characteristics and different properties. Simon Wadley has created this evolution cheat sheet to determine the stage of evolution per component. So for example, designing for failure as a component doesn't necessarily to be a physical component. It could be activities, it could be data, it could be knowledge. So it could be different activities. And so designing for failure is something that is more an activity component. Maybe it could be a component of your water map, of your value chain. And if you can apply best practices, then it's something that goes more onto the right spectrum with some commodity. I love that because here you're describing if you're building a stable component on top of something that's instable, whatever characteristic that you want to describe it, it lets you make very strategic decisions on whether you can elevate that component, whether you can wrap that component into something that might give it the option for failure. It lets you just kind of isolate that and make very strategic decisions on it. So I really like when you brought up the complexity of dealing with writing something that's very stable on top of it. It makes a lot of sense to me. And that also brings us to the context map of domain-driven design, right? Where we have context map patterns describing the dependencies between bounded context 
visualizing or making aware the change coupling between bounded contexts, right? And if you have a bounded context that is more like a supporting subdomain integrating with a core domain related bounded context, and there's a context map pattern between those, maybe a partnership or something like that, that gives you also bringing in context maps with the distribution of your bounded context on the evolution stages, gives you an indication whether you have introduced tight change coupling between those systems. Very nice. So Susanna, we're about at time. So what's next for you? What's coming up in the next part of the summer for you? Well, (laughs) ah, yes, finishing my book. (laughs) Right now, it's now in the review process and need to wrap it up. And then also see if we can still publish it this year. Let's cross fingers. And then also, yeah, looking forward to new opportunities, training and something like that I'm doing also the second half. As always, Susanna, thank you so much for all that you do for InfoQ, for QCon, and for the larger community as a whole when it comes to microservices, when it comes to thinking about microservices and architecture. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.